Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to do like we did last week, and instead of reading the, the entire section, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to read the section we're, we're dealing with, and then we'll, uh, we'll move on to the, to the next section. Um, but here in this section, we have the beginning of the preaching ministry of Jeremiah. It's a very hard message that he brings, a hard message of sin, a message of judgment. I mean, look with me at, uh, at, at verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. God there is pleading with the people of Judah, and he's doing this through this man named Jeremiah. But I want you to take special note of that word, contend, in the ESV, which is what I'm preaching out of tonight. If you have the King James Version, it's plead. But that's a Hebrew word, uh, riv. Um, and it means to toss, it means to grapple, it means to strive, to contend, to, to quarrel. And, and most scholars believe this is actually a judicial term. And if that's the case, what it means is that God is laying out a legal case before the people of Judah. And while I do believe that that's, that that's the case here, there's something else I want to add to that as well. Uh, the word is used because it shows that Jeremiah is passionately pleading with these people. Um, in other words, God's not just out there stating some legal case so that um, they'll say, okay, God's got an issue with us. That's not what He's doing. He's stating this case with passion so that they're going to recognize their own guilt and they're going to throw themselves onto the mercy of God in repentance. And so Jeremiah is preaching in hopes that, that the people of Judah are going to experience the grace of God. Now we know this to be true, church. You have to see your illness or you will never run to the great physician. You have to see it. You have to experience spiritual poverty before you'll ever seek after the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to that end that Jeremiah is preaching. And so we're going to look at the case that God lays out before Judah, and then we're going to look at the grace of God in this chapter. So let's look together at verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. So first thing I want you to see is the goodness of God here. That's what you see in verses 1 through 3. And we see the goodness of God, first of all, in that God brought His Word to them. God brought His Word to them. Three times they're reminded in verses 1 through 3 that God is speaking to them. You see the verse 1, the Word of the Lord. The end of verse, uh, the, the, uh, verse 1, no, I'm sorry, the middle of verse 2, thus says the Lord. And then the end of verse 3, declares the Lord. So three times they're reminded here that it's God who's speaking to them. And the fact that God would speak to people who are not speaking to Him is a wonderful thing, isn't it? That we, when we give people the silent treatment, when we give people the silent treatment, and can I say this, the most pitiful, the most dreadful, the most unkind thing we can do to another person is say, I'm just not going to talk to you. Unless that person has created some sin against us that's so dreadful that we can no longer speak to them, one of the most unkind things, and I see that, people who say they're Christians won't speak to other people. 
That's a terrible thing. And you can think you're the greatest Christian in the world, but if you're so shallow that you won't even speak to another Christian, something is desperately wrong in your heart. Here's a people who would not even speak to God, yet God spoke to them. And if God speaks to people, then we should speak to people. Amen? If God, in all of His grace, goodness, speaks to people, we should be willing to speak to people. So, so we see the goodness of God in that God would even speak to them at all. And then in verse 2, we see the goodness of God in that God remembered them. God, re- God remembers how Judah loved Him. He said that we were just like newlyweds. Israel followed God like a young bride, He said, follows her husband. And so God remembered this. God didn't just forget all that He had with Israel or Judah, which He could have. So we see the goodness of God in that He spoke to them. We see the goodness of God in that He remembered them. And then we see the goodness of God in verse 3 in that He protected them. He said they were set apart as holiness to the Lord. They were like the, His first fruits. They were a choice possession. And He said, anybody who ever attacked you, He said, what did I do to them? He said, I judged them. And this is looking back when God delivered them from Egypt. And so he's saying, do you remember there was a time when we had a love? You loved me and I loved you. God's remembering this that they had with one another. You see, they have wronged the one who has always done them right. They have cursed the one who has always blessed them. And they had forgotten the one who had always remembered them. And so there we see the goodness of God. God spoke to them. God remembered them. God protected them. Now we see the idolatry of Israel, verses 4 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But you came in, you defiled my land, and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that did not profit. So their forgetfulness led to idolatry. We see that in verses 6 and 7. We know the story that God led them through the wilderness and to the promised land. You know, how do you forget something like that? How do you forget this wonderful thing? And by the way, every year they celebrated the Passover to remind them of that. How could they forget that that they were in bondage, but now they're free? How could they forget that they traveled through a dangerous desert where they should not have survived, God said, I delivered you from the desert. I delivered you from pits, from drought, from the shadow of death. As they went through there, God delivered them. And He said, you received this bountiful land, the promised land, and you didn't deserve that land. They forgot all of these wonderful things that God had done. God says, you forgot, but I remember I remember delivering you from the bloodthirsty Pharaoh. I remember when you were in the desert how I sustained you through drought, delivered you from death. I remember bringing you out alive when it wasn't possible for anyone to survive what you went through. I brought you out alive. 
You know, we would think it more likely that God would forget us than we would forget God. Because when you think about who's done more for who, God's done more for us. Amen? And so we would think that, logically speaking, that, that the one who's going to forget would be God. Because the bottom line is God has reason to forget us. Because we have forgotten Him. We've departed from Him. Yet He doesn't forget us. So their forgetfulness led to idolatry. And that's what happens when you forget God. When you forget all the good things that God has done for you. When you you quit remembering that you were dead in your sin. And God saved you. And God has done so much in your life. That's when you will begin to engage in idolatry. Maybe you don't build an idol. Maybe you're not bowing down to something made out of rock or wood. But all of a sudden, the things in this world become more important to you than God does. And listen, all idols aren't made out of stone or wood. Many of them have batteries. Amen? Or gunpowder in them. Or hooks on the end of them. A whole lot of different things can be idols, can't they? And so it's when we forget about how God saved us and how good God's been to us that leads us to idolatry. And so their forgetfulness led them to idolatry. And look at verse 5. Their idolatry was an insult to God. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. He says, God says, what did I do to deserve this? And technically here he's saying, what sin did I do? What wrong did I do to convince you to turn to the worship of worthless idols? And you see, you, you see further insult in verse 6. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, the land of deserts and pits, I mean, they didn't even notice the Lord was no longer with them. They're they're not even looking for the Lord. They don't even say, where is the Lord? What if if this happened in your life? What if, I don't know if you're married, if you've got kids, whatever. But let's just say, you leave your house and you're gone for six months. And you live with people, okay? I know if you live alone, this this analogy ain't going to be great. But let's just say, the people you live with, you're gone for six months. Been no communication no texting, no calling. And you come back and you open the door and you realize nobody even knew you were gone. They said, you were gone? I didn't even notice. How insulted would you be? How broken hearted would you be? God says, that's what it's like. You didn't even look around and recognize that I wasn't even here anymore. And that's a great, great insult. So their forgetfulness led to idolatry. Their idolatry was an insult to God. But look at verse 8. Their idolatry was widespread. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. I mean, look at, look at, okay, you got the priests. They don't even know that the Lord, they're doing the Lord's work. Supposed to be. And they don't even recognize that the Lord isn't with them. They, 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 they handled the law. 
that they had it in their hand, but they didn't have any relationship with God. He says the pastors there, and we shouldn't consider that like pastors today. That's not what the word means. The word means, literally it's the word shepherd there in Hebrew. And then oftentimes the, the official rulers of those lands were called shepherds because they led the people. But these people who were supposed to be leaders, that they rebelled against God. And then he said, even the prophets, they're not speaking for God, they're speaking for Baal. That was the chief male object of worship for the Canaanites. The chief male object of worship for the Canaanites was Baal and their prophesying in his name. And so this idolatry went from priest to ruler, to prophet. And, and why is he using those illustrations? Because if it's that high, you know it's among the people as well. Now we see in verses 9 through 19 the, the absurdity of Israel's actions. Look at this. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then is he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and, and, uh, and Topphanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt or drinking the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Now that was a lot there, I understand, but let's break it down. First of all, verses 10 through 12, they have left their own God. God says... What you have done, pagan people don't even do. You know, God says to Cyprus, if you've got a King James, it'll say, Chittim there. God says, go out there to Cyprus, which is, which is from the west. And, and go to Kedar, which is, which is from the east. And He said, look diligently, look among all of these false gods, these people who worship false gods. And He says, this is what you'll find. They are loyal to their false gods. Their gods aren't even real, He says. But boy, they're loyal. They don't change their gods. And so He's saying these pagans who worship false gods are more loyal to their God who doesn't even exist than you are to your God and your God does exist. Look, look, look at verse 11. Has a nation changed their gods that, that aren't even real? No. The obvious answer is no. But He says, but you have. And, and this is so disturbing it's as if God can't get a witness on earth because the people have so departed from Him that in verse 12 He says to the heavens, He calls them as a witness against Judah, you know? 
He says, you know, they won't be astonished. They won't blush. They won't repent. So be astonished, O heavens. Be afraid. Be desolate, which means devastated. You know, we should be blown away at the ease in which people forsake God. We should be blown away. We should stand in shock, as the Lord is implying here, that people would forsake the one true God. But we certainly see that even in our culture, don't we? People are more loyal to their sports teams than they are to the Lord. They won't miss a game, but they'll miss a service. Amen. We'll not miss a game. They'll tell you, I ain't missed a game. We missed you last week. Amen. More, More loyal to a political party. Well, I tell you, when their candidate's running, man, they are a witnessing machine. Not for Jesus, but for the Democrats, or for the Republicans, or for the Independent, or somebody. All of a sudden, these shy people who don't like to talk to people are talking to everybody. Right? And that should shock us. That we are often more loyal and more passionate about earthly things than we are to our God. And God is saying how absurd it is to be more devoted to small, worthless things on this earth than you are to the living God. He says, that's absolutely absurd. And then He says, they have forsaken the living water. Look at verse 13. God mentions two evils. The people have forsaken living water and the people have embraced broken cisterns. Now, there there were three different ways to get water in Jeremiah's day. A spring, a well, and a cistern. Now, a cistern's not the opposite of a brethren, alright? But the best way to get water was from a spring. Because it was fresh, it was clean, it was always there. The worst way to get water was a cistern. Springs in the Bible are called fountains. Pure water, easily accessible. How did cisterns get their water? By rain. Or by, sometimes they would put a cistern off the edge of a roof and the water that came off the edge of the roof would go down into the cistern when it rained. But the problem with the cistern was a lot of times they leaked. And not only did they leak, but the water was sitting still so it became a breeding ground for insect larvae. So you had to be really careful if you were getting your water out of a cistern. So again, how foolish it is to forsake an easily accessible spring for a broken cistern. He says it makes no sense. He's continuing that analogy of of those who have forsaken the living God for for worthless idols. He said it's like saying, hey, you know, I'll go get my water out of a broken cistern when there's a, a fountain here, a spring here that I could go to just as easy or maybe even easier. And then we see the the absurdity of trusting in nations. In verse 18, you have a reference there to Egypt and Assyria. And these these were nations they looked to for protection. Whenever an enemy was coming against them, they would try to make an alliance with these nations so that when they fought, they'd have some help. But the problem was, in doing this, they were embracing their gods as well. Drinking the water of of Sahor or the Nile. 
Drinking that water, drinking the water of the Nile, what did that symbolize? That symbolized adopting the gods of the Egyptians. Drinking the water of the Euphrates in Assyria symbolized the same thing. You're drinking their water. Their gods have become the one who supplies your needs in your mind. And look at the question God asks in verse 14. He says, is Israel a slave? Is Israel a servant? Is Israel a prey to predators, a spoil of war? That's not what I created you to be. Yet your sin is going to lead you into being taken captive by these very nations that you're trusting in. Look at verse 15. You see the nations described as young lions that come and overtake Israel. They're destroying the cities of God. In verse 16, you see Egypt has shaved the crown of Judah's head. What does that mean? That means that they have began taking their land away. Just as you're taking someone's hair away when you're shaving it away, they are easing in and they are taking the land of Judah away from Judah and keeping it for themselves. And so he's continuing this idea. It is so absurd for you to embrace these false gods. I made you free These nations are enslaving you. I gave you land. These nations are taking the land away from you. You know, sin makes us foolish. Israel's idolatry was absurd. But they couldn't see it. And it's like that sometimes when you're talking to somebody who's wrapped up in sin. They're so foolish they can't see it. You plead with them and you reason with them and you try to show it to them. But but sin is so deceiving, isn't it? Sin is so blinding. Many, many in our culture are just like these, these folks from Judah. And then we see in verses 20 through 28, the sinfulness of Israel. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I'm not unclean, I have not gone after the bells? Look at your way in the valley, know what you've done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless for I have loved foreigners. After them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, who say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face, but in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah." So so it's all the worse because God has already given them freedom. You see that in verses 20 and 21. Again, God set them free from Egypt. But yet they're serving gods who didn't set them free. They're going to every high hill, um, under every green tree. This is where the, the places of Baal worship were. 
But God had planted Judah as this good vine. God did His part. And so so they didn't have any excuse for their sinfulness. They knew better. They'd been given all these spiritual privileges, but, but yet they did not care. And He says to them, He says, You cannot cleanse your sin by human effort. In verses 22 and 23, He mentions lie or, or nodder. And, and He mentions soap. Those are two different type of cleaners that were used in that day. So He says, You can take all the soap you want, you can wash, but it's not going to remove your sin because your sin isn't on the surface. Your sin is beneath the surface. And look at verse 23. No matter how much they claim to be clean... He says, you're still dirty. God mentions them in the valley down there. What is that talking about, you say? Well, this is probably a, a reference to the valley of Hinnom. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, where, where there was child sacrifice practiced. He says, you're even down there doing these idolatrous things that, that sacrifice their own children. He says you're enslaved by your sin, verse 23 through 26. And he uses this analogy. It's a very graphic analogy, by the way. He uses the analogy of an animal in heat to describe Israel's enslavement to sin. Verse 23, you're like a young camel that's running around trying to find someone to breed her. He says you're like a wild donkey in heat. You're sniffing the wind, trying to find someone to breed her. You're driven by your lust. Now, why is that interesting? That's interesting because normally a donkey that's in heat doesn't have to do anything but just stand there. Somebody's going to catch a whiff of her and the male's going to come to her. But he says, you're not even like that. It's not that false gods are coming to you. He says, you're like a donkey that's in heat, ready to breed, yet you're running around and finding every farm you can to breed with every donkey that's willing to breed you. Now again, I know that's graphic, but that's what the Word of God's saying here. God's making a point. He's saying, the false gods no longer come to you. You go to the false gods. You seek them out. And look, this is interesting, verse 25. God, God says, stop running after gods until your shoes are worn out. He says, you guys are running so fast after, show, uh, after false gods, you're running out of your shoes. Verse 25, he says, you're running after gods so hard that your throat is parched. You're just thirsty. And look at how Judah replies to God, verse 25. They say, we can't help it. We love it. We love it. And there are people like that that say, you know what, I just love it. I love my sin. I'm not going to quit. Whether that's the sin of drunkenness, the sin of pornography, the sin of homosexuality, the sin of fornication, the sin of profane language, whatever it is, there are people like that who say, you know what, I love it too much to quit. And they're so enslaved that even when they realize... They're going down the wrong road, but these gods can't help them. They keep turning their back on God. Verses 27 and 28. They keep saying to a tree, a piece of wood, an idol made out of a piece of wood, You're my father! They keep saying to, to a stone carved out in a specific image, Oh, you gave me birth! Even though it's dumb and foolish, it makes no sense. They, they keep doing this because they love their sin so much. Verses 29 through 37, we see the stubbornness of Israel. 
Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children, and they took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel, or a land of thick, thick darkness? Why then do my people say we are free? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things, you say, I'm innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust and you will not prosper by them. So Israel, you know, they just refuse to see their sin. Verse 35. I'm innocent. And then she blames God. Verse 29. She's upset because God's disciplining her. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me. They're contending with the Lord, shaking their fist at God. God, why are you doing this to us? And so many people do that. So many people, their life starts falling apart. Things aren't going great. And they're just mad and angry at God. God says, I disciplined you, verse 30, to bring you back. He says, I sent prophets to preach to you, to bring you back. And what did you do? You killed them. Now, we don't kill the people God sends to preach to us. But we kill their character by slandering them, by talking bad about them, by rejecting them. God says, I sent you these people to speak to you about God, and you killed them. And, and they said to God, they said, well, God's like a wilderness to us. God's a place of loss. God's a place of darkness. And why is God a place of darkness to them? Because they want to live by their own light. They want to live a certain way, and God says you can't live that way, and so their darkness becomes their light. And so God's light is darkness to them. God's paradise is wilderness to them, because it's not what they want at all. They really become their own gods. And look, Israel refuses to publicly identify with the Lord in verse 32. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride or attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. He's saying you won't even wear your wedding garments. What bride refuses to put on her wedding garments on her wedding day? He's saying, is, is Israel ashamed of God? So ashamed that they won't even publicly identify with Him by living out His commands? And he says, in fact, he says, you're going even further. He says, it's not that you're just not living for me. He says in verse 33, that you're teaching pagan nations how to sin. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even wicked women you have taught your ways to. God says, you've become the seducer. You who are supposed to be the light of the world, the, the salt of the earth. You who are supposed to be glory to the Gentiles. He said, you're out there teaching wicked people how to become more wicked. You know, it breaks my heart. The people who are raised up in church, people who attend church, are actually teaching people how to sin. 
teaching their brothers, teaching their sisters, teaching their classmates. Sometimes a husband teaching his wife or teaching his children. By watching them, they're learning how to sin. God says, these are wicked people and you're just teaching them how to be more wicked. Look at verse 34 through 37. He says, you even mistreat your own people. The blood of the poor, he says, is on the garments of Israel. She was once oppressed, but now she's an oppressor. And she can't even make up her mind if she wants to serve. Well, you look at verse 36. She can't even make up her mind if she wants to serve Egypt or Assyria. She don't want to serve God, but she can't make up her mind. Do I want to serve Egypt? Do I want to serve Assyria? And God says, judgment's coming. Now let's end with the grace of God. I want us to close with a look at the grace of God. Because it's been a depressing chapter, hasn't it? But it isn't a chapter without hope. In in the midst of this chapter, Israel needs to understand they have a wonderful God. Go back to verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord. Why is God contending? Because there's still hope. Amen? If God weren't contending, there wouldn't be any hope at all. And why does God give us prophets? Prophets are pleaders. They plead for God. Why does God give us preachers? Preachers are pleaders. They plead for God. Why does God give us the Scriptures? The Scriptures are pleaders. They plead for God. God pleads with every sinner. But what is the greatest plea, church? The greatest plea is the cross. The cross of Calvary stands. Christ says, come unto me. You look at the cross and there's the proof of our sin, but there's also the proof that God loves us. And that God calls us to repentance. We are sinners, but there's a Savior for all who will repent and believe. And I'll tell you this, if the cross don't move you, nothing will. Amen? If looking at that cross of Calvary, what Christ went through does not move you, nothing will. The cross of Christ pleads to us. It says, it's finished, I've done all the work. And then the cross of Christ pleads for us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But then look at verse 13. For my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me. I don't want you to miss the grace of God in this verse. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Do you see what God calls Himself there? The fountain of living waters. What a title for God, amen? Our God is a fountain. What does that mean, church? It means He cleanses. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Amen? And so we see this fountain. He cleanses, but He also fills. Jesus said, He that believeth on Me out of His belly shall flow rivers of living water. John chapter 7 and verse 28. So that fountain of God will flow through you. Not just to you. Not just over you. But through you. And so here we have tonight in Jeremiah chapter 2, a passionate plea to a pitiful people. Everyone is invited to be washed in the blood of the Lamb, to be filled with the Spirit of God, and every person ought to come. Amen? He's laid out this judicial legal case. You are guilty. But He says, I'll give you grace. What wonderful hope we have in Christ. Amen? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to enjoy preaching through the book of Jeremiah. I hope you're going to enjoy listening. Because I'm going to enjoy preaching through it. Amen.
Um, two sermons ahead, and I was working on my one, and I was just ready to preach it tonight. Amen? Let me bring this and preach chapter 4 tonight. But I'll tell you, this is good stuff. It's wonderful, wonderful truths that weren't just true for Israel, but true for us as well. Thank you, Lord, so much for loving us.